Well, if I can have your attention, um, there's a misprint in your bulletin. Uh, instead of uh, Luke 18, 1 through 8, it's 9 through 14. 18, 9 through 14. So we're, it's just the very next parable that Luke gives to us in, in Luke's gospel. So if you were here last week, you heard Isaac as he preached from that, the first parable that, that's given of this unjust judge. Um, man, what a, what a great reminder. There's an invitation in that, that, that when, when we're at that point when we're most likely to give up praying, it's what's important is that we understand the very nature of God. And, and, and Isaac invited us last week to see God as the um, exact opposite, right? The photo negative of the unjust judge who is reluctant to hear our prayers. And as a result, it speaks to a condition of our hearts that we feel oftentimes, and that is we lose heart, that we give up. We are prone to give up. And the call is to continue to pray because God's heart is exactly the opposite. Well, this week, the, the next parable that Luke gives to us from the lips of Jesus addresses a different condition, a condition that you and I face at, at times. And he tells us this parable. It's a condition that, that radically changes the nature of our prayer. If the first parable is about prayer, so is this one. It's about prayer. But this nature of the heart, this condition, can neutralize our prayers. In fact, it can turn our, our prayers into nothing but self-exalting words that are empty. And so Jesus wants to address the nature of this condition the nature of this, that we would call it pride. Pride. Self-conceit. Self-righteousness is what this looks like. Now, now, pride is dangerous in all contexts, no matter what, but it's most dangerous in a religious context. And that's what Jesus is addressing as we see these two characters that are represented in this parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. One of my favorite descriptions of the parables that Jesus gives, it's this, is that parables are imaginary gardens that have real toads in them. They're imaginary gardens that have real toads in them. And as we read this parable, we're reminded that Jesus tells this parable, it's a a picture, but in them are two characters that we are to come face to face with. And they will cause us to ask the question, to discern our own hearts, the nature of our hearts as we look at the Pharisee and as we look at the tax collector. And there'll be an invitation for us as well at the end to see God rightly and to respond rightly. So let's read our text this morning, Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house 
justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We're so grateful that you tell us about ourselves and our hearts because our hearts are hidden to ourselves. And so we see in this parable a picture of a condition that is dangerous. And we see a picture of a condition that brings life. Oh, Father, would you open our eyes to ourselves today that we could see ourselves, and more importantly, that we could see you, that indeed we could love you and we could love each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this, this presents two characters for us with two completely different heart conditions, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector, two orientations of the heart, two things that they're committed to seeing. I don't know if you've heard this, um, but there's something called dog and cat theology. Have you, have you heard of this before? Dog and cat theology. I don't know if you're a, a dog person or a cat person. It's not exactly meant to be disparaging to either one, but we're dog people. We have a couple of dogs, and it goes something like this. Dogs, right? They, they, they see you as the owner. They say you feed me, you care for me, you pet me, you give me housing, you take me on walks. You must be God. The cat, on the other hand, says you feed me, you care for me, you tend me, you pet me, you clean my litter box. I must be God. If you're a cat person, sorry. It's true. (laughs) But you realize there's two different orientations of the heart. And we see as we look at these two characters, the same is true. They they, they look at the world, they look around them, and they they orient the world around themselves, around the others. two different perspectives. And we see as we look at these two characters, the nature of the Pharisee in his heart that's filled with pride and self-conceit. And we see what it yields. It yields something that's very dangerous and pernicious. On the other hand, the life of the, the tax collector, we see this humility, we see this dependence and what it brings. Jesus opens his parable or that Luke gives us the target audience for this parable in verse 9. That he told this parable also to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That this is who this parable is for. Those who trust in their own goodness, their own righteousness, and at the same time treat others with contempt. Now you can read those two characteristics and you might think they're two distinct ones, but what we need to understand is this, the target audience, the person that this is speaking to, that both of these things are true. That the one is the ground of which the other, the the self-righteousness is the ground from which contempt for others grow. That the one is a byproduct, right? Contempt for others, the way we see others, looking down on others, grows out of self-conceit, out of self-righteousness. That we are bent, as we think well of ourselves, of looking down on others. Think about that just for a second. Think about the views, the opinions that you hold most dear to yourself, They might be political, they might be social, they might be theological, I don't know, but there's views that you hold 
dearly and they're important to you and you believe that you are right in holding those views. But now think for a second those who don't hold those views or differing views, who aren't so right, who aren't so righteous. And I can only speak from my own heart. I tend to look down on those people. I tend to view them with less respect. In fact, Jesus uses the word contempt to look down upon them. Luke wants us to know that that's what happens when we elevate ourselves. We inevitably look down on others. I'm a runner, and over the course of my running years, I've realized I've increased in miles, and I sort of first started running 5K, and then I started running 10Ks, and, and I would look at the little stickers on the back of cars, and I'm running 10Ks, and I say, oh, they're just 5K people. I'm a 10K person. And then I start running half marathons and I look down, they have a five or 10K. I go, well, I'm a half marathon or they just run five and 10Ks. And then, and you see how this goes. You elevate yourself upon the backs of others. And that's exactly who this parable is for. You see, the, the Pharisee evaluates himself based upon others. His reference point is others. And he elevates himself based upon the status or the position of others. And so we have this juxtaposition of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus addresses this. You should be asked, of course, why is it so important that Jesus would tell a parable directly related to this condition of the heart? Why is it so important to understand this? Why is pride and its relationship to prayer so important? I would encourage you guys, if you have mere Christianity this next week, to read the chapter called The Great Sin in that, which is on pride. And C.S. Lewis addresses this issue so well of the danger of pride. And he writes this in Mere Christianity. He writes, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love. That pride and love are incompatible with one another. And pride does something to prayer. It turns it on its head. It turns it on itself. That love for God and others is incompatible with pride, with self-conceit. And Jesus calls it out, and especially in this religious context. I said before that pride is dangerous no matter where, but especially right in a context of, of religion. And Lewis goes on to write, he says, it's a terrible thing that the worst of all vices, that is pride, can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. And that's the danger of our pride when it makes itself and it finds home in our religion and what we believe to be true at the very core of our lives. And the danger and the sad, tragic thing is that we take at times the very gifts of God's grace and they become the very things from which conceit grows. And Jesus addresses this tendency of the human heart to take the things most dear to them, most important, the very gifts of God and to use them to elevate, to exalt ourselves and at the same time look down on others. To show others contempt. And the danger, of course, is that pride is naturally blind to itself, right? The more proud you are, the less you're able to see it. And thus, its effects on us, as in the life of this Pharisee, it's insidious. We can't see it. 
And so Jesus calls this out. He says, I want you to see this human condition that affects how we know God and how we love God and how we love others and especially how that expresses itself in our prayer life. And it's not that Jesus is so much offended at our pride, but rather he knows its effects upon us, the danger that it does. Because it doesn't build his kingdom, it rather destroys it. But then we have these two characters. I want to ask two questions. What does pride do in the Pharisee's case? And what does humility do in the tax collector's case? Verse 10. Uh, two men went up into the temple to pray. These are Jesus' words. One, of the, one is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee says this, right? Standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am li- I'm not like other men, extortioners and just adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This Pharisee is a professional prayer, right? This is what he does for a living. And it's, probably, I would guess, a common scene to those who are listening to this parable. They've seen Pharisees do this. They've heard these words, perhaps even from the mouths of Pharisees as they come up, right? They were at the top of the social, religious, pietistic heap, right? They were the ones that were respected. They were looked up to as those who represented the very righteousness of God in the way that they lived, We, we see this, we might have a little more critical view on Pharisees, which we should. The listeners then would not have been so critical. They would have been held in high esteem, that they would have looked and seen, looked at Pharisees in this way. His piety as he presents it to God and to others around him is certainly significant. It exceeds the very what it was required in Torah. But you see what's happening. What does he do with his own good works? He uses it for his own self-exaltation. And what does he do at the same time? He steps on the back of those around him in order to exalt himself, which is, by the way, the very best that our fallen human nature can do. It's all we can do is see ourselves in reference to one another and lift ourselves up and elevate ourselves at the same time depreciating others and that's exactly what we see taking place because everything in this way the righteousness if it's up to us is relative because it's both competitive and it's comparative but the haunting question of this parable is this if Jesus opens with this statement two men went up to the temple to pray then the question is what exactly is this what the Pharisee is doing. What is he doing? What do we call this? Is this exactly a prayer? And if this is prayer, then we have to ask the question, what exactly is prayer? You heard Ben as he led us in our confession. Prayer is a kind of dependence. We are agents of prayer and something is born out of our lives and in certain circumstances that prayer as agents if I can put it this way, is from God. It's directed to God. Prayer is about God and it's for God. That's what prayer is. It's from, it's to, it's for, and it's about God. We see that this man does exactly the opposite. What does he do? He is not praying. 
something different altogether is coming from his lips. Four times in this, in this parable, he, he says, I, I, I. God is addressed, but it's not about God. And even the language is funny. He says he prays by himself. Other translations says he prays to himself. And you go, what, what is he doing? What exactly is this? And you realize he is the agent of prayer. It is from him. It's to him. It's about him. And it's for him. That's what this is. And so we have to say, whatever this is, it is not prayer. It's oriented around himself. A heart filled with pride and self-conceit does this to prayer. It exploits it and it cannibalizes it for its own interests. And it degradates others. That's exactly what prayer does. We use it and that's what the Pharisee He exploits it and he cannibalizes prayer for his own interests. You see, self, as self is enthroned, there can be no real knowledge of God. When prayer is about us, we can't really know God. We really, in one respect, can't even pray to him in this case. And prayer is just not empty words. If that were the case, it would just be benign and neutral. But the fact is, something very dangerous is happening even in this prayer. It becomes destructive Real prayer seeks to establish the kingdom of God. It seeks to live out the will of God. But what's happening in this Pharisee's prayer is exactly the opposite. The kingdom of self. And thus the kingdom of Satan is being established. All the while being cloaked in religious language. See what pride does is it takes prayer it exploits it and it cannibalizes it for our own interests and it's not about God it's about ourselves and for Satan's purposes but Jesus didn't stop there he gives one example but then he gives the next in verse 13 we have the example and we ask the question what do we learn about prayer from this what does humility what does dependence do in this And Jesus says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, just the the, the juxtaposition and the, 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 the way that Jesus sets these two side by side in contrast is in one respect astounding and scandalous, right? The, the highest of the high and if you've been around church, if you haven't, you seem to know that the tax collectors are the lowest of the low. They were in the bottom rung. They were despised. They were the ones who stole and extorted money from their own fellow countrymen to build themselves up. And at the same time, all the while, they are serving the hated, occupying Romans. They were despised. They were at the very bottom rung. And we can't overestimate the negative understanding of this character and juxtaposed against the highly esteemed Pharisee. But as we look in these words, as we go below the surface, we see a completely different heart that's represented from this disrespected, this looked down upon tax collector. We see a picture of true humility. We see actually the very heart of prayer that comes from this man. And something has happened. What do we learn about prayer? We learn that humility, seeing ourselves for what we are in light of who God is, something is forced from the heart. And it comes from dependence on God. As we see ourselves 
That something is extruded, if you will. And what that is, is genuine prayer. God-dependent prayer. It's the prayer that says, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't have anyone else I can depend on except for you. And so this is the very heart of prayer that we see from this man, from this despised tax collector. A line that I came across this week that was so helpful when we see these two men side by side is this. Two men went up to the temple to pray but only one really prayed. Two men went up to the temple to pray, but we only find one legitimate, authentic prayer that comes from the lips of this tax collector. And we see his position as he comes into the presence of God. Jesus tells us he stands far off, right? He can't come near. His head is down. His countenance has fallen. He can't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he beats his breast as an understanding of his own failure, an understanding of who he is and what he brings before God. And then he prays this beautifully simple, dependent prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is in desperate need. He is the desperate recipient. This humble and desperate prayer of the tax collector is born from God. It's directed to God. It is about God and it was and it is for God. You see, God is at the center of it. It's exactly the polar opposite, the negative of the Pharisee as he comes before God. And you look at what does he bring? What's on his list of things that he brings in contrast to the Pharisee? Nothing. The Pharisee has his list of things. Look at what I've done. Look at my righteousness, certainly compared to others. And the tax collector says what? What does he bring? Empty hands of faith. The only thing that he's dependent on is what? Not what he has, not what he has done, But in the very mercy of God is the only thing that he really depends on. His only hope is in the one thing that maybe God will be merciful to him. That's the very basis of his faith. A more literal translation of this prayer is beautiful. It adds even more emphasis to how he sees himself. And it goes like this. God be merciful to me. The sinner. It's a definite article in the Greek. Not a sinner, but the sinner. You see, it's not in reference to anyone else. He sees his sin in light of God alone. I am the sinner. There's no one else I can compare myself to. No one else I can prop myself upon. I am, I am the sinner as I look into your eyes. God is the only one that counts. As he stands before God, he sees that it's his own sin alone that matters. And what happens when you see that? It prompts true, authentic, humbled, extruded prayer. He can't help but cast himself upon the mercy of God. This is what true humility and dependence bring. Genuine prayer. Because this is what happens when we see ourselves in this state. The very thing that we need, the only thing that we need is the only thing that God can give us. 
The very thing we need is the only thing that he can give us. He's the only one, and that is his mercy. And so we see that this humility and dependence, what it brings about, he seeks God's mercy. As we stop right here just for a second, and we think about the prayer of the Pharisee, and we look more specifically at the prayer of the tax collector. Have you been to this place? Where you look at yourself that God by his grace has pulled back the veil and you see all that you are and all that you're not. You see the ugliness and the sin. You see your own wretchedness and your lust and your pride and your envy and your jealousy and your greed and your addictions and you bring them and you see that and you stand before God and all you can say is, God be merciful to me. And you look at your hands and you go, I don't have anything that I can bring. My my hands are empty. In fact, they're filled with nothing but sin. And even my own goodness and righteousness is not nearly so good as I thought. Have you come to that place? That is the place of true dependence and prayer. That is the place of life with God. That's the way we find life. It's a beautiful place to be. And Jesus gives us this picture. says, yeah, this is, this is the call. This is what real prayer looks like. But I want to close with a final point. We see that pride and love and knowledge of God are incompatible. That pride brings about a prayer that's self-exalting. In fact, it's not prayer at all. But humble, dependent prayer actually transforms us. And Jesus, at this point, it's interesting. He cuts off the parable. Leave the man in this place. We hear his prayer God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But the, but the story is not over. The story of this man and the story of all those who follow in the same pattern isn't over. In verse 14, Jesus says these words. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we ask the question, what does prayer accomplish? What does it bring about? What does it change? And Jesus tells us how it changes the position and the condition of this man, this tax collector, as he comes. We must see in this man, in this humble posture before God, the most natural prayer from his lips. This distance he feels from God. I can't even enter into his presence. His countenance has fallen. I can't even lift my eyes the way that he beats his breast. And we understand that certainly there's a sense in which that posture before God is prerequisite and it's necessary as we come into the presence of a holy God, especially as we see our sin. But here's the beauty of this story. Jesus will not allow this man to stay in this position. He won't allow him to stay there. The one who comes in dependent prayer, understanding that this posture is necessary, something is transformed, something changes, that Jesus will step and transform the position of this man before God. And you ask the question, what does Jesus do with this man as he comes and he does two things in the final words? He justifies him. And he exalts him. He says, I tell you, this man, in contrast to the other, went home 
justified. And then he concludes by saying all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Their position will be elevated. They don't have to do it themselves. So Jesus justifies and he exalts the position of this man. When Jesus comes, when we come to Jesus in this kind of humble prayer, he changes our position before God. I love to think about Jesus as as those with disabilities came to Jesus. Those who were lame and those who were blind and those who were deaf. And you ask the question, what happened to them when they came to him in dependence? They left different than when they came. Their condition changed because they came into the presence of Jesus. And the same is true for the tax collector and all those who follow in his pattern, those who come to him, their position before Jesus is transformed, that he changes it in light of where they are and coming. Something radical, permanent, and eternal changes in his position. If we come, like the Pharisee, in self-righteousness, you know what happens to us? There is no transformation except for our ill. We don't change. We don't learn about God. The only thing we come into contact with as we come as the Pharisee is a God that's made in our own likeness. And actual damage is done to our souls. But as we come as the tax collector, humble, our position changes. As we come in this posture, Jesus speaks a different reality into being. And he says, I tell you, this man goes away justified. Now that word is an important word in the Bible. Don't have time to unpack it, but it's a theologically rich word that Jesus says, this man went home justified. And you say, what does justified mean? I'm going to give you a Jerry Bridges definition that I really like. He says that justified means just as if I have never sinned. The tax collector, the despised of all people in in that day goes away just as if he had never sinned at all. He leaves justified. That's what Jesus does to his position. That word is powerful. And even the mercy that the man asks for is an important word. It's the word that that gives us the picture of atonement or covering for sin, which means that as he comes and asks for God's mercy, he realizes that God must do something to deal with my sin. He must cover my sin He must address my state of being. He must act in order to atone for the depth and gravity of my sin. To this one who stands at a distance, his countenance has fallen. He's beating his chest before God. Jesus sends him away justified, mercy unending, covered, sin forgiven. We know that it's from the body and blood of Christ that would bring that. And he exalts him. He changes his status, not because of something he had or owned or in his hands, but because of the very mercy of God. He goes away justified. That's the transformation of place and position as we come to God dependent. This man's entire position before God is transformed through his humble prayer. And it's true for all those who approach God in this way with empty hands. Our head bowed down as we see ourselves. 
But Jesus won't allow us to stay there. And the beauty of this picture, if you can picture with me just for a second, this man, what does Jesus do? He's standing there feeling naked before God. He comes and he clothes him. This man can't even lift his eyes and he says, lift your head. Experience the forgiveness of God and look into the very face of God. And he lifts us to see his love and kindness of a father. He wraps his arms around us. He ushers us into the presence of God and he gives us a new identity. The identity of this man is no longer the sinner. The identity of those who come to God in this way is no longer just simply the sinner, although we still sin. Our identity and our position is transformed to be sons and daughters of God. That's what God does. That's the invitation for us this morning to put away our pride, to repent of our sin. But you know what that means also? We have to repent of our own righteousness. The things that we bring to God and say, look at this. He goes, no, it's not enough. We repent both of our sin and both of our righteousness as we come into God's presence. I want to conclude with this this thought. I don't know where you are today. I've wrestled with this picture in my own mind. I know there are times in my own life when I look and there's times I think I'm more apt to come into the presence of God because I've been good that day, right? I haven't done anything really too bad, but there's other times in my life because of my thoughts or my actions or my motives, I see it and I'm just not so prone to come into God's presence. I'm like, I'm not so sure he really wants me there. And I stand like the tax collector at a distance with my head bowed and I go, I'm not so sure he really wants me in his presence. But the beauty of God's mercy is exactly the opposite. It's not just in the times we feel comfortable. It's especially in the times when we look at our own lives and we go, I don't belong there. It's that time in specific that God most delights for us to enter into his presence. Because that's the time we need the only thing that he can give us. In those times we go, I'm not so sure he wants, he goes, yes, he delights. Think about if you're a parent and you have a child that is wanting to stay distanced because of something they've done or thought or whatever. As a parent, you go, yes, no, no, that's the exact time you need to come to me. And if we, being just fallen earthly parents, our infinite God says, yes, please come. Especially in the beauty from the words of the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us come boldly, especially in those times, into the presence of God, to receive mercy and grace, to help in our time of need. That is the invitation is offered for us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this goodness. Father, I, I see both characters in my own life. I see the pride of the Pharisee when I look at my own good things that aren't so good. And at the same time, I know those seasons where my eyes are opened, the veil is pulled back on my, on my own sin and my own failure before you. Oh, Father, would you, regardless of how we see ourselves today, would you enable us to humble ourselves, to cast ourselves at your mercy as we see ourselves as the sinner and yet to experience the forgiveness that comes alone from the work of Christ to justify us, to exalt us based upon his work. Father, would you work against the pride that so easily grows in our hearts and would you give us eyes to see you and us such that 
we could offer prayers to you that are truly prayers of dependence that are from you and to you and about you and for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.